the first guy in didn't have had many, many imaging studies. He had a little stricture in his pancreatic duct and they stented that and they took cells from that and the cells were normal. But he had our test and our test was screamingly abnormal. Shortly after having our test, his pan part of his pancreas removed by a robot. That tumor was full of precancerous lesions. His risk of developing pancreatic cancer was at least 70%, and now he's cured. We caught him really at stage zero. He had no identifiable lesion. That's, I mean, that's incredible. You've probably heard about something called genomic sequencing or, or NGS or molecular testing, precision therapy, targeted therapy. We talk about it all the time on this podcast. But today we have someone who was talking about it and doing it way before we were talking about it. I have Dr. Paul Billings, who has basically had a hand or a hat in everything that relates to that kind of more precise level on hopefully, hopefully being able to identify cancers, one, earlier, secondly, more uniquely, and thirdly, not do such a kind of a broad-based treatment, but instead really identify the fingerprint. And I couldn't be more excited, literally at goosebumps, because he was really a part of, the, of why we're here today and talking about it. And he still is very much an active part of that. And we're gonna get into pancreatic cancer and the whole concept of basically catching things early, right? I always say on this podcast, if you have you know, a cancer somewhere, by far, the thing that will never be replaced is if you could just cut out that colony and liberally all the stuff around it, you're probably good, right? So all that to say, I can talk forever, but Dr. Billings, we're so happy to have you. Um, if you want to give a, a 10 second summary, because like they can go to Wikipedia, which I did a couple of times and I just got more and more nervous and excited. Um, how would you summarize what you're doing today in 10 seconds? And really, is there a special story on what brought you into this kind of, you know, very niche area and, and so ahead of the times, if you will? Well, um, what I do today is I'm the um, chief executive officer and a director and the senior physician as well uh, in a company which is exploring the role of exosomes uh, which are uh, products of all cells uh, but also but in particular examining exosomes from cancer cells as opposed to normal cells and trying to use that information uh, for the benefit of, of, of patients in early diagnosis in uh, we'll, we'll explore it in treatment selection and treatment monitoring and, you know, in all ways trying to make that uh, a piece of, of the data that uh, improves the care of cancer patients. You can use exosomes, uh, by the way, in infectious disease diagnosis, in, uh, in uh, CNS diseases, brain diseases, all sorts of things. So uh, we're, we're going to use exosomes across the board as an information source. Uh, but we're particularly focused early on in cancer. That's so cool. Uh, and by way of background, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Californian, uh, first-generation American. Uh, my parents and everybody else in my family are physicians uh, of different kinds, and, you know, pathologists, psychiatrists, radiologists. We're, we're, a, we're a physician family. Uh, I'm an internist and medical geneticist, and I was one of those uh, very few internists uh, after I finished my internal medicine training, who was interested in family illnesses and in genetics, and so did uh, a couple of years of fellowship in medical genetics. It was not that common. It was mostly pediatricians and uh, OBGYNs who went into medical genetics back in the day. It's now much more common as part of uh, training uh, that people actually uh, 
uh, like me, internists, uh, people with medical specialties, or even surgical specialties, um, get genetics training. What I think drove me was partly family history. Everyone knew that family history was an important risk factor, but genetics, and you know, and as we've become more sophisticated in genetics, genomics is really being able to identify very specifically uh, hereditary factors that influence. Uh, your risk for disease or the type of disease you have or if the mutations are only in your, not in your every cell of your body in your germline, but in your, just in your cancer tissue or your brain tissue or whatever. Somatic is called, so these are called somatic mutations. Mutations are, are identifiable now in, in ways that we never could do before. Yeah. When I was training, we just could infer their, their presence or maybe measure the protein, the abnormal protein that they make. Now we can, in, with very inexpensively, we can isolate the gene, sequence it, tell whether it's normal or not, and, and use that information to the benefit of patient care. And um, that's a game changer. I mean, it's endless, uh, in a lot of it's endless knowledge because like, it's like you just, there's so many things you can continue to learn. It's like you've opened this, not even a new chapter, but really entire new Harry Potter series. It's like you're already in another thing that has, instead of six, seven, whatever books it is, it has yeah. 50 books that you know of and it could have another hundred and you have reason to suspect that. So for people to understand, you know, the reason you said first you did medical genetics like, or others did for like pediatric stuff, that's because most people when they hear the word genetics, they think inherited. They mean like it was something that was passed on and that is part of your blueprint for the creation of all of right. your cells. So it was childhood disorders and, and genetic stuff, the old stuff we still learn in med school, Prater, Willie, and all these things. And and what people I hope can start to appreciate, and I made a TikTok on that, it was like a it was kind of a trick question. I said, what percentage of, of cancers are genetic, right? And I had like a couple of choices. And the answer was 100% because they're all genetic, but is it inherited genetics or what you're handed off? Right. Or is it something that was like basically that tissue had incurred these errors, about 10,000 errors we have every day in our bodies, but our immune system does a great job correcting them, but some go under the radar, obviously, hence the reason for immune therapy and all this stuff, and you're studying that and, and, and well beyond that. And the exosome thing is cool because to give somebody another example they may understand, when you're you know culturing to see if somebody has uh, an infection, you gotta like throw it on a dish. This is a very like, you know, kind of a blue collar way of doing it. You throw on a disc, you see what it grows, you drop a couple of things. And now to think about exosome and, and the application for infectious disease, you can get that bone marrow transplant patient and basically just see immediately if that, like we know what is in the coding of that bacterial species. And all of a sudden within like six to eight hours, you just like see if it's, oh, it's a perfect match, like, you know, on Tinder or something. And then you see that. Yeah, actually, you know, you know it's, it's really cool that you say that. We're, we're doing a project uh, on uh, tuberculosis, you know, which is an amazing, important worldwide disorder still. I mean, we, Outbreaks in the United States are relatively rare, and, and not, but worldwide it's a big, big killer still. And there are lots of people who have, let's say, HIV or other, other underlying illnesses who don't manifest acute tuberculosis, this, the signs, the traditional signs, you know, a positive skin test or a bad chest x-ray or, or a, you know, kind of a node somewhere. Anyway, they don't manifest that because they're immunodeficient in one way or another. And we, we can show almost immediately as, as, as the tuberculosis bacteria enters the body that the, the exosomes uh, from the bacteria and the exosomes from the macrophages that eat up that bacteria, those exosomes can be identified right away. And it's very inexpensive. 
and we can make in a diagnosis of acute tuberculosis from that. And that that's, you know, that's pretty cool. And I, I you know, we got some ways to go to 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 make it a, a reality in a, on a global uh, uh, network. But it's pretty cool uh, as a, a thought that you, yeah, you could, could really just catch it that way. And and yeah, all, yeah, and, yeah. And, it's a whole new way of thinking right. about it. And yeah. I think the one thing that people forget to appreciate is it's all possible because of a closed circulatory system. So when I'm when people are hearing this. The reason is when your heart beats, everything's closed unless you're hemorrhaging, you know, like from a horror film. Right. Then what's happening is right. that arterial blood is is the fuel and gas and coolant and everything you need for your car. Like the, every cell needs it. So then when it's leaving it, guess what? You catch the remnants. You see that crude oil that they always tell me, why didn't you, why did you change it sooner? I'm like, how do you know? And they're like, it's all dark and this crummy stuff. That is like, you know, it's got to go around. And when you draw it even from here, you can kind of see the evidence of what went through. So one can imagine if you're sensitive enough and you can really isolate the things that are cancer cells or infectious cells or whatever. I mean, in this kind of like Black Mirrors and Netflix show like world, you could actually get pull and just see almost all of these things going on. It's almost like this like data on like, oh, you have a UTI, this whatever. Right. I didn't know that. So. It's crazy. It, but before we move further, real quick, when you say exosome, just so for the average person that's listening, we've talked about like sure. free circulating tumor, tumor DNA. And then they're like, oh, then there's RNA and then there's exosome. Can you just give us a 10 second like kind of idea of what we like when they hear those terms, what they should be thinking or how they should be thinking about it? Sure. So, so let's start with exosomes since that's uh, the area of my most uh, acute interest. So exosomes are these little um, buds, vesicles, really, that bud out of each cell, and, but they're, they're, they're different sizes, right? They're very, very, th cells bud very little things, though, you know, one nanometer in size, which is really yeah. small. And then there are, uh, there are these uh, things that come out of the, the surface of these cells that are in the sort of 50 to 300 nanometers, and those are what we call exosomes, and they're produced in a particular area of the cell, and they have a sampling of the proteins, and sometimes they have DNA and RNA in them as well, um, uh, but they have a sampling of the stuff in the milieu that's around this apparatus that's producing these uh, 50 to 200 or 300 nanometer subcells that come budding out of the, the cell itself. And then there are bigger, there, occasionally the cell will produce either uh, two exosomes that are fused together or bigger vesicles, which could be as much as 500 uh, nanometers, even a, a, a micrometer. And um, the, the, these are, uh, 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 we don't entirely understand what the biology of these things are, but these, these budding uh, vesicles will modify the environment around the cell. They might alter the immune response to the cell. They might alter... Uh, the collagen or other kinds of, of, of uh, intracellular or uh, cellular, uh, extracellular interactions that occur. And some of those uh, vesicles may actually enter the circulation or the CSF or the urine and, and affect cells downstream. So they are, um, they are information-rich, protein or DNA or RNA-rich uh, vesicles, structures produced by cells that modify uh, other areas uh, of the body, either near or maybe far. Um, they've been known for several decades. It's not like this is, this is a brand new finding. But we, we've recently been able to develop new methods for isolating them. We, for instance, our method isolates lots of exosomes from 
you know, ha less than half a cc of plasma. So we're getting lots of exosomes from a very, very small amount of, of plasma, and, you know, which a half a cc of plasma is one cc of whole blood. So you can imagine one cc of whole blood, not much. So uh, it's very, there are a lot of these things in the blood, and uh, we're just learning how to analyze them and how to make make uh, sense out of the uh, information we get out of so, them. So, you know, we're almost... Uh, RNA, I mean, I'm not going to... I assume your audience is familiar with RNA. RNA is, are the building blocks of genes. R, uh, that's DNA, the building blocks of genes. RNA are the way that genes translate their information, their biochemical information, uh, into instructions to make proteins. And, and proteins are the actors. Uh, of, of genes. I was, I um, was asking about, about my experts just to hear the different, and I think that was the cleanest way. You just said the, the RNA and DNA was the cleanest way. So, but the exosome part is so interesting, almost in a kind of philosophical uh, way, in the sense that if you're able to look at the exosomes for like these viruses that are very stubborn sometimes to tell on the brain, like Creutzfeldt, you know, Jaeger, whatever it's called. And yeah, uh, Jacob Creutzfeldt's disease. Yeah, right. uh -huh. yeah. So, are you telling me that we exist in a world of things that are alive, like bacteria and viruses and ourselves and ourselves that communicate in almost these kind of like hone out missiles, the same way like NASA throws out just a bunch of things into space and saying like, hey, this is humans, this is our language. I hear that we send a lot of stuff in case somebody else captures it and understands it. You're telling me all living things, even when they're in your body, will kind of send these things with actual purpose. It's not just, sometimes I use the example of, seeing DNA, tumor DNA in a shedding sense, which is like, you know, that that is basically just the remnants, like uh, skin, like dust or hair, yeah. right? So if you watch a movie, that's one way to think about it. But the exosomes are not just that. In that same docuseries where somebody spat, for example, and you're like, well, in the court, oh, and then we found spit and we saw who they were. The thing that's a level higher is that spit actually had a function. It has amylase and, and, and some things to break down. Yeah. It actually had a use, even though it has been detached and left. And that is a really good transition to the concept of basically an environment, an environment around a tumor. And specifically, cancer, uh, pancreatic cancer, is notorious for really monopolizing its environment. And you have these, you know, concepts called immune deserts and not immune deserts, immune rich. Is it inflammation rich, like like you know, lymphomas and Hodgkin's? Right. You all of right. a sudden have a lot of recruitment. Other places are like. They, they camouflage to the point where they looks like they have a cloak that just looks like the sand and you can't see anything but desert. It's, it's extraordinary. I assume a lot of that is mediated in an exosomal fashion because you're not actually just throwing out a fishing rod and bringing it in, right? That's like, this is a way to actually communicate or recruit, like you said, for the kind of area around it. Well, you know, we don't, frankly, this is an area of, of which is almost a whiteboard for, for basic science researchers in oncology. We don't really know all the ways that each individual cancer cell modifies the right around it, you know, a few millimeters from it or a few centimeters. As you say, um, there are some, it's, you know, we, in a macro phenomena, we know that some cancers are highly inflammatory. You know, they recruit uh, in whatever way our uh, immune cells home to these cancers or the area of these cancers, and there's, you know, all this tumult uh, for almost from the beginning. Right. You know, I, again, maybe not for absolutely from the beginning, but early in their evolution, they really engender these intense immune responses. On the other hand, 
as you well know, there are other cancers which, as you say, are like deserts. I mean, they're, they're growing, but the immune system, the whole body's uh, uh, defense uh, mechanisms kind of ignores it. And, and, you know, some of, these, some of these things can get to pretty big size without anyone noticing. Ruckus, yeah. Exactly. Uh, others of them, as you also know, at a very early stage metastasize widely, either the bone marrow or to the brain or, you know, other sources where there's lots of either lymph flow or blood flow and go there and they're widely disseminated before the body even recognizes them. So it, there's a lot of heterogeneity in, this, uh, in, this, in the response. But as far as we know, each one of those uh, tumors and each one of the cells in the tumors and each one of the cells around the tumors are producing exosomes, as far as we know. And if we can capture those exosomes and categorize them and analyze them, we ought to be able to tell something about the evolution of tumors, the evolution of response to tumors, and, uh, you know, we can also uh, potentially load those exosomes if we get them at the right stages and sort of know where they're coming from or where they're going to. We can load them with, with therapeutic molecules and use them to home and use them as therapeutic vectors. Like a and that's, people are trying to do that. There are drug companies that are already trying to do like that. Like a Trojan horse, and, like you, you know, basically let it come back, and, and but you already have that little cytotoxic chemo in there, and it gets disguised. Exactly, exactly. That's that's actually people are, are thinking. And, you know, people, yeah, you know, uh, you, you mentioned uh, cell-free DNA. I think you've, you've probably talked about cell-free DNA on, on your show before. Cell-free DNA uh, and circulating tumor DNA, that's made uh, usually when cells either are killed necrosis is the pathological term or when cells do program cells die you know in a programmed way and that's called apoptosis those are uh not all cells are going through that at the same rate right some, some tumors don't do it very much there are some tumors which just don't produce very much circulating tumor dna similarly i used to work in uh, circulating tumor cells ctcs they're called and uh they were very promising a decade or two ago, and they're still really interesting. Uh, but the problem with CTCs, again, is that not all cells, not all tumors produce them, and not all cells produce them at the same rate. So um, while they, they, they're whole cells, and they're tumor cells, and they're, you know, you can analyze their DNA and RNA and proteins too, um, they're, they're, they're a limited subset. The, the cool thing about exosomes, at least so far, is that they're universal. Every cell produces them. Tumor cells produce them, as far as we can tell, abundantly. Normal cells produce them abundantly. And we just need to be able to distinguish accurately what's the information from a tumor cell from what's the information from a normal cell. And that's, that's what my company uh, is working on. There are others, uh, uh, and there's been really active research recently on that area. So it's so neat because you know, we talk all the time about catching something early, and this is a way, you know, I always say, and correct me if I'm wrong, I really am waiting for someone to correct me, no one does, because I, I guess, I always say it takes about 300 to 400 million cells in one place to see it on an average CT scan, right? Like, you, you don't see 50,000 cells. Like That's why all the time you hear, oh, the scans are clean, and then you're like, oh, where did it come back? You know, and some people right. are suspicious that it's, you know, purposely not curing, but really what happens is you just don't know, I mean, you can't see it, right? Like, you need that many right. to see it. And so exactly. we have these ways to identify 
kind of like the products of something beforehand. Um, and that's exactly what you're looking at with exosomes. It's like, do we know, do we know the code of ABDFG? We know that that's one step away from ABDFH, which is pancreatic cancer. And we know that if it's that AFDBG, that 70% that, that of them turn into pancreatic cancer or is, is a pre-cancer. So not only can you tell the exosomes of what is like kind of featured or that or that you know grab bag unique grab bag box of a cancer but but i know y'all are looking at even what could be the step before because it's always a series well, of mutations. you know we're we, exactly right so our what what's unique about our research design is that we only analyze exosomes from stage one stage zero or uh st or you know people at risk and with very very early uh, changes in their pancreas or stage two, we've we've pretty much ignored later stage cancers in our in the development of our uh, co computational machine learning uh, uh, algorithms, which help us distinguish the exosomes that are cancerous from the exosomes that are not. And you know, we we just as an example, you know, uh, we've just recently launched the test in our in our uh, CapClia, you know, in our laboratory, uh, and we've just launched. A prospective study where we're looking at people at high risk for pancreatic cancer, in particular. And you're you're quite right. Pancreatic cancer is one of the clear clearest examples. If you get it in stage zero or stage one, and you take it out, you pretty much cured those people. Uh, if you wait any longer, you, those people die at a very very high rate. The difference between the survival in stage one and the survival in stage two is many tens of percent yeah, tens of uh, and and so um we we the first guy in um didn't have had many many imaging studies ultrasound imaging mri ct scans didn't see anything he had a, a, a an ercp where they cannulated his pancreatic duct he had a little stricture in his pancreatic duct and they stented that and they took cells from that and the cells were normal and uh he had even one of the uh, one of the new tests for uh, for uh, that are offered for people at average risk for cancer. It's called the Grail the Grail, Grail Galleria test. That was normal, but he had our test, and our test was screamingly abnormal. And uh, he ended up shortly after having our test having uh, his part of his pancreas removed by a robot at the Mayo Clinic, and that can that tumor was full of. Uh, of these things called IPMNs, which are uh, uh, precancerous lesions, and they were they were highly dysmorphic, and so he was his his risk of developing pancreatic cancer was at least seventy percent uh, with those lesions. In and now he's cured and he recovered uh, nicely from his uh, his pancreatic surgery. He's out there leading the good life. And uh, I, I feel really good about the fact that we caught him really at stage zero. He had no identifiable lesion. That's, I mean, that's in the, incredible. No. And I hope with that story, someone incredible. can conceive or understand why, one, we don't have screening for pancreatic cancer. Two, you know, we always learned in medical way back in the day that, for me, was you get lucky if it happens to be right by where the, you know, the bile uh, duct is able to be blocked. If it's right there, then you turn your urine changes or you turn a different color. But anywhere else, there's not nerve endings. It's not like a ton of nerves, like, you know, evolutionarily. It doesn't make sense to have any exactly. or, or organs. And 
and and that's I mean it's truly and every couple of months I get a patient where they're like well you know the the histo the the immunohistochemistry basically the histopath the kind of older way I mean we still do it all the time but where you just kind of look at a slide and stuff and they say this does look suspicious for kind of like neuroendocrine or GI upper but there's no mess and it was an exclusion like like to say well we don't see one so it's probably not that in a little stricture and again no mess gone are the days i need everyone to understand this gone are the days where if you don't see it on a scan does it mean that you don't have a malignant collection of cells for that little dab absolutely and we have now sensitive methods more and more that'll help the pathologist who who either doesn't see anything on the biopsy or the imager who doesn't see anything on the mri or the pet scan or the ct scan we now have blood-based sensitive techniques which will help them in those ones where they're very suspicious but they just don't see anything help them uh you know get those guys to to uh more uh, aggressive treatment and will save those people's lives and the reason uh, that, that's for yeah sure. i mean in an early stage it it, it it would absolutely because you're actually able to take it out but even in this other patient i know you're not looking at it yet with stage three and above but he had, they had several like liver lesions and lung lesions and they're all kind of similar size never smoker and no nothing looked primary like big enough and on, on histo it was just ck7 was positive and they wouldn't say what and i just don't have a good feeling because the ca199 was elevated around three or four hundred but a ton of disease so sure you'd expect to see uh you know a higher number um on a classic pancreatic but it doesn't feel good as an oncologist and this is why it's because are the chemos and treatments we use very much depend on what the primary is. And so obviously right. I'm waiting on comprehensive testing like, like NGS, but this thing is moving so fast, I've got to cytoreduce to bring down the burden ASAP because the, the liver's compromised, the lungs, and I'm like, this is kind of do or die. I, don't wait, I can't wait two or three weeks to see, you know, to tumor seek or whatever, to see the constellation. That's where this thing that you're talking about is so important because what I treat for pancreatic is different uh, regimen than if it's lung, like they're kind of saying, or if it's, you know, they have their idiosyncrasies. So that, it's, it's immeasurable, of course, in a curative way, but I could see a big use for it, even in these settings where, where you know, you're just, it's hard to tell what it is. And the other big thing is, and this is what's, what's absolutely nuts, is going back to you saying not only, you know, right now you're looking to see, okay, are there early signs, but the concept that, to, that the technology can be used to play the same game and just basically use the same exosomes or secrete them in some kind of manner to where they go very unsuspectingly like around those cancer cells and can somehow then clamp on to say, oh yeah, he's good. It's kind of, you know, how people dress up as a security guard and they're the bad guys to get in the bank. It's the same thing. It's like they dress up as a security guard, you come in and then all of a sudden you release something and it's a very, right. the cool thing is instead of doing the systemic toxicity of everything, in a, in, in, a, in a future world, you could see how like that identification and basically embracing can actually cause right. a big problem for a cancer cell. Well, you know, we have, bio, you know, we've, we've, we've done a version of that, of course, by using biologics that ha are, are targeting an antigen that's, you know, specific to tumors mm -hmm. as opposed to normal tissue. I mean, that's, you know, we've had that kind of technology since we've developed monoclonals, which is, you know, several decades right. now, and we've, we've now harnessed it more and more uh, for uh, treatment delivery. But exosomes probably have uh, as well that same targeting capability that a biologic does, but we might be able to, to either do combinations or other kinds of 
of uh, treatments inside that, the cargo. That's crazy. That's crazy. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be so You know, we, and we're, we're, we, can, we can put therapeutic viruses in there. We can put all sorts of stuff uh, that, um, you know, might, might really tilt people into a, a, a better outcome. You know, obviously we have to show uh, that there are better outcomes, and you know, it's the, there, we've got uh, plenty of clinical trials, and that's why, by the way, it's so important uh, that you're, the people who listen to you, um, you know, understand how important research, clinical research, is, and how important it is that they give their information uh, as uh, readily as they can, and uh, you know, and uh, to. Uh, to the researchers and to the databases so that we can pull all this information as quickly as possible and get to answers as quickly yeah. as possible. Yeah, I mean, every time I'm saying no, conceivable, that, oh, I could conceive or you could think of, all of that hinges on research and data and trials. Like, just so people know. Absolutely. I know some people doubt this. I've seen it on social media. I get it. I, I get the, you know, being suspicious of basically anything. But, but, but this whole concept of, Oh, they just give stuff. We don't give stuff in this community, in the medical community. There's, we're not perfect by any stretch. And I've learned a lot of that in practice. But we don't do things that are not evidence-based. You will never have like insurance companies paying for something that doesn't show evidence. And the only way we get evidence is research. So if you're somebody that says, I want to know, I have a strong history of, of pancreatic cancer. I would love to know before I could see it in an image. Now I'm scared because you tell me you know, that you don't have pain receptors there usually. And if you're scared, you get on trial. Like if there's a trial that's open to say like, hey, you have a high risk, these are the, the criteria, then you right. get to get up, pick up these exosomes. And you have contributed now to potentially a you know, screening method for all of our kids and everybody else because you enrolled. And that's how we learn about these things. Well, and frankly, you know, so in my, my, my company has a, a study called the Exoluminate study, which is a, basically a perspective registry study. And it's looking at, in particular, at people with a family history of pancreatic cancer, people who have one of the known germline, you know, one known inherited mutations, which raise their risk, like BRCA, uh, raises your risk for pancreatic cancer, and people who've had uh, a clinically suspicious finding, whether it's, you know, a, a nodule or a cyst found on an incidental x-ray or uh, an episode of uh, pancreatitis that, you know, uh, doesn't, can't be explained something. Else. These are the groups that can enroll in this study and uh, they get free testing. I mean, it's not like we're, it's not like we're going to charge right. them. It's, it doesn't cost them anything, to sh but all they have to do is share their clinical information and uh, allow us to take a blood sample three times uh, over the course of a year, year and a half. And uh, we'll give you, you know, uh, they get free testing. Yeah. And, you know, what in the end, in the end, hopefully the results, when we, we justify the results, will indicate that our test really makes an additional benefit to the standard of care. And the standard of care is mostly imaging yeah. at this point. That's and that we can pick up uh, in, in those at-risk people, their cancer earlier. That, and, and that's, that's, incredible. that's what everyone wants. Everyone, like, there's so much anxiety these days in my generation, and a really younger one, and millennials and younger, about, like, do I have something? And, you know, pancreatic cancer is getting younger. Like, they're, they're just younger people. Absolutely. Water, yeah, the, the, it's, shifting, it's shifting to younger yeah, ages. That's terrifying. true. I would MRI, MRI myself every two months if I could, you know. But and so one extra one other additional thing that I want to let people appreciate this whole concept of what you're doing with exosomes is one of the biggest problems, I think, and it makes sense, is that when we start therapies, it takes a minimum usually of about, you know, four at the earliest, but usually about six weeks to let's see if it's working. 
And then you do this scan, right. and then you don't know if it's like partly, is it the dead necrotic cells? Is it the actual cancer shrinking? You're letting it go for right. six weeks. Um, and if it's not working, you kind of way behind the eight ball and people are sicker. Imagine, and this is going to take, again, research, but imagine if you were able to see the changes in the exosomes of a cancer cell yeah. that is literally, with that Trojan horse example, all of a sudden at, at war or has a lot of calamity because the treatment's effective. If we could know what those little boxes of exosomes that are being secreted, how they change in response to that injury from the chemo, then you can right. find out something is working conceivably within days because they get the injury within right. days. And also more importantly, you could see that those boxes are not changing potentially and have high suspicion again on evidence that this treatment is not working. Let's not give you two or three or four more cycles and continue to give you the poison right. of cytotoxic and then we scan you. And then all of a sudden you get people getting 12th line therapy, 13th line therapy because right. you have a much quicker assessment. Well, you know, we're we're. I agree with you that the 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 information, the cargo in the exosomes, and even the number of the cancer exosomes, uh, should be a, a a marker for effectiveness of therapy, and it should be a more sensitive marker than imaging after six weeks, two months, whatever. Uh, there's there's already an example of that, or examples of that. In fact, beautiful trials using uh, circulating tumor DNA. Uh, you know, uh, for instance, uh, and there actually are Medicare approvals in this space uh, where, uh, you know, immuno-oncology drugs, which are uh, remarkably effective in some people, remarkably ineffective in other people, and, uh, you know, toxic, they can affect your immune responses and can turn your immune responses against you in one way or another, and they're expensive. They're very expensive, unfortunately. Um, but those drugs, if you have presence of circulating tumor DNA and you have a sensitive assay for your circulating tumor DNA, let's say you have lung cancer or colon cancer or whatever you've got, and you show that there is circulating tumor DNA before you give them immuno-oncology drugs, those, and then most of those people will respond very rapidly with a drop in their cell-free DNA, whether you measure it. There are several ways you can measure it. There's a very sensitive way. There's a somewhat less sensitive way. Whatever you've decided to employ, if it starts to drop right away after you begin, that's a response, and you should keep going. Uh, you know, and and sometimes actually in, in in imaging, there's something called pseudo progression, where it looks like the tumor is getting worse, but in fact it's just because it's it's getting better to get better. Yeah, yeah, it's ready to collapse. So, so the circulating tumor uh, DNA goes straight down. The, the image, some images get worse, then they get better. Some images don't change. And those people who don't change uh, also are detected because their circulating tumor DNA does not go down. And so you have an example of exactly what you're talking about, which is a tumor marker, sensitive tumor marker, which can indicate responders from non-responders very early in treatment and avoid unnecessary cycles of immunotherapy that are useless, which can increase your risk of side effects, which can increase your bill dramatically. And, you know, even the payers are starting to say, well, unless you show that the stuff is going down, you know, this is not useful treatment and why should, we're not going to pay yeah. for it. And uh, that's happening. And, I, and I, you know, frankly, I'm, 
you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always in favor of people having access to all the treatments that are available. But on the on the whole, with, with expensive and toxic treatments, I want there to be a sensitive response marker, just like I want there to be for people who have early detection of uh, or at or have high risk for pancreatic cancer. I want there to be a sensitive surveillance marker that tells those people as soon as they convert from at risk to be the beginnings of cancer. I want that to, that, that to be available so that they can get treated. Similarly, I want people who are, have cancer, who are getting uh, toxic drugs and expensive drugs, I want them to know immediately or as quickly as possible that that drug is working in them. Fine, we'll keep giving it to you. But if it's not working in you, right. there must be either there's another option, there's a clinical trial available to you, or uh, you know, there's palliative care, frankly, right. and you know, Take a take a trip. But you remove that. You remove the variable of like, and I had these conversations often, you know, in Louisiana. It's like the variable of is it worth it? My treatment. And they're eighty years old or eighty-two, and they they were kind of on the fence. Sure. And that just knowing that the you know the seven to ten days or the toxicity of the treatment is not in vain, and it actually is, is working. I mean, that is like priceless. That's why I love that skin after of the course. second cycle. It's, it's yeah, because then I'm like, I told, you, I told you, you know, and, and a lot of times I can see metrics or you can like liver, if you have a lot of liver disease from that cancer, all of a sudden the liver enzymes start going down. I'm like, this, this is why I don't even need the scan yet. I'm like, look what happened. And you all of a sudden see this joy. And before that visit started, they were like, you know, just really just kind of, you know, the, the intensity of the treatments almost felt worse, and that's that's how I would be. But then when you see the proof of the concept, and you know your cancer burden is going down, like this is yeah. not an example that we have the liberty of on most people. But there are these things, and it makes a huge difference on how somebody's headspace is during the process. Well, it's really, by the way, quite interesting because you know there are some companies and and researchers that are developing um, predictive, uh, uh, you know, AI predictive uh, testing information, which will tell you with pretty good accuracy what tumors respond to what drugs and what tumors will not respond. And then you have another set of developments which are about response basically to whatever tumor you have. You know, you have a sensitive response monitor to your particular tumor using your blood. And the question is, which ones will get adopted most, most easily? Will the profiling of the tumor be adopted or will the response monitors be adopted? And my bet is that particularly in the communities, that community oncologists working with sick patients, like you just said, you know, older patients, you know, who are really don't want to waste their time if they're not going to get better, um, that the response monitors will be actually more adopted than the profiling monitors, profiling guys, because the, there will always be some uncertainty in the profile. You know, you'll yeah. say, well, oh, this profile is perfect for this drug, but you know, 10% of these people actually respond to that drug or this proper protocol. And do you really want to deprive them of the chance of having that right. 10%? But if you're looking at a response monitor and the response monitor is incredibly sensitive, you're really talking about, here's your tumor, this is yours, and is it responding yes or no? Is the number going up or down? And if it's going down, you're responding. Because that one's more a precise big... to you. And that's the thing. Exactly. And imagine this, like where whereas the the you know, with Folfox, like for pancreatic, I have to give patients or, or cisgem or 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 braxane, whatever. It's like every two weeks sometimes, right? If I have right. the prediction model, then I still have to give you two like every two weeks, I have to give you a cycle two to three times at the age of eighty two and the toxicities to restage you. 
But if I could give you that one dose and in two to three days or a week, know instantly, like like have good, you know, like um, faith that this thing is working, again, the headspace, the toxicity burden, like that way I can jump on the next thing to hopefully reduce your burden. I mean, it all of a sudden, and then what if I said this, Dr. Billings, that instead of sticking with that bigger dose of two to three week dosing, what if I could give you a weekly dose just as a test dose? What if, what if I could conceive a basically a, t- a litmus test, which a lot of people don't know that what that is apparently, that makes me feel old, but um, I could give you a test run <laughs> of a smaller dose of the first thing. And if I see those variations and change, then we go up to the full dose and then we can, we feel good about the that. You know, those, that's a really clever idea, Sanjay. And I, you know, I, it, we, we're gonna start seeing this particularly in some of the interesting areas in colon. You know, colon cancer is likely to be uh, the lead area there, because you know we're, we're clearly almost everyone agrees that we're over treating stage two and stage some stage three colon cancers, mm-hmm. and if we could, you know, we're making people sick and giving them toxicity, and uh, when we don't need to be treating them. So if that's you know that's maybe going to be where those ideas, where you know litmus test ideas get get you know really. Uh, really try it out. But, uh, you know, it's going to be true in lung cancer. It's going to be true in, in other, uh, you know, I'm, I'm particularly interested, in, as you know, in pancreatic cancer, but I'm also interested in ovarian cancer, right? Because ovarian cancer, similar situation. People get, it's not, you know, people don't have symptoms until they're well advanced. And, um, you know, I'd like to be able to identify people at risk and then provide them with surveillance that's effective and sensitive and not too invasive. Uh, from the right from the beginning of their risk identification, and get them, get them early. That would be incredible. And, uh, that would be incredible. It'd be really, it'd be really quite a change in in practice paradigm and in and in the outcome of those patients. One hundred percent. We will definitely include the links on you know what you're doing, how to access it. Between you, you know, we had uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee and Formalities. Like also, we talked a lot about. Oh, he's he's a he's a. Rem- I heard him speak recently. He's he's. Uh, He's a kid. Yeah. He's a great guy. And, you know, he does beautiful basic science work as well as he writes Very beautifully as well. Yeah. And so he's, 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 a, he's a renaissance man. He, That's the way I would that. describe I'll, him. I'll send you the episode. I gotta say this one is maybe better. Oh, I'd love to see that. But, uh, but yeah, that. we had a lot of metaphors. We even talked about a hot dog eating contest as an example. So it gets pretty wild. <laughs> but Dr. Billings, I just, this was amazing. I almost just, if maybe at some point have you back because there's just so much to unpack. Oh, I'd love to come back. We, could t- we should talk more about clinical trials. And yeah. How do you get, how you lower the barriers to getting people into clinical trials. And, uh, but, uh, you know, thank you very much for, for finding me and, oh and uh, it's very ni- nice to be connected and do do send me uh, some links so that I can become a regular on the, the Onk Dog. <laughs> I'd be very humbled and flattered, even just for this time. I'm super excited. Where can people find you just so they know on those trials that you're talking about? Do they, I'm gonna include those. www.exoluminate.com uh, and my company is, is www.biologicaldynamics.com. Perfect. Thank you, Dr. Billing. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.